We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game betting odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Player and team development we expect or are hoping for that's what we're talking about today on stealing bananas i'm ben gretch you can find my twitter at yards per gretch you can find my substack at bengretch.substack.com and with me as always is sean siegel find all of his great work at rotaviz sean we're going to talk a little bit about running backs today i think we are and uh, we do this from time to time obviously running backs extremely important ben you had a note for us right before the show started about the injury tags, so many of the top guys are sporting currently. We do expect some of that to clear up by Sunday. We're recording this Thursday, early afternoon. We have the superstars that we talked about for Wednesday's show. And then we have a lot of movement. And one of the teams that is having movement at wide receiver, movement at running back, and really is not where they thought they were going to be at this point are the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to you as right before waivers locked that I, you know, it's, it's always fun with, with waivers to try to feel the room and have a lot of different conversations and figure out who's sort of maybe going to go under the radar. I had expected, especially with Daryl Williams rostered in most places that Jarek McKinnon would be garnering more attention than it, it sort of became clear, but I didn't put, put those things together early enough to, to like sort of voice them. I, I think I sent you an email four minutes before lock while I was recording ship chasing with Pat and Pete, but I think McKinnon's really interesting in the, like I had already cut him in some leagues, which I think was reasonable given they had not even tried to use him. He played all of uh, 19 snaps across the first four games of the year. So, you know, five a game, barely playing at all last week. We were talking a little bit about, uh, I think earlier in the in the week, we may have talked a little bit about how even before CEH got hurt, like the beginning of the game, it was a little bit more of a rotation. We saw a little bit of McKinnon. We saw a little bit of Daryl Williams. And obviously, CEH winds up getting hurt. But at the end of the day, McKinnon plays 27 snaps in that game in a pretty big blowout script, a scenario where the Chiefs, who we know, are, are going to sort of deprioritize the running backs, were incentivized in that game, especially to deprioritize a running back they were losing uh they had to throw and they had to throw aggressively but he plays 27 snaps daryl williams goes up to 37 snaps for for williams that was a 43 percent snap share and williams had previously been the last couple of weeks in the 30 percent he was at 34 percent 36 percent so he had been sort of the 35 percent to, to ceh's 65 percent uh in terms of their split CEH plays some in this game, so we don't get like a full 100% split for Williams and McKinnon. But Williams goes from this 35% range up to 43% in the game where CEH gets hurt and they're and they're using the other guys a little differently. McKinnon jumps up, 
plays only 10 fewer snaps, jumps all the way up to 31% of the snaps. So it was 43% Daryl Williams, 31% Jarek McKinnon. I think that went a little bit under the radar because Williams still wound up with more touches. Uh, McKinnon only had the three touches. I think Williams had like eight. But I think some of that was a little bit fluky, so to speak, by you know game script. They just didn't give their running backs a lot of touches at all. There wasn't a lot of handoffs. There was a lot of um, – and I think Williams will be the guy that will, will ultimately get more of the handoffs, especially the inside ones, the, you know, the low-value touches, if you will. And he might also get the green zone touches. He seems like the favorite for that. If, if a running back here, assuming they don't trade for Marlon Mack or do something different, if a running back here emerges – Sort of from the from the off season, one of the things we talked about is Daryl Williams is not a an explosive back. He's not, never really had you know strong efficiency. He has a career three point eight yards per carry, you know whatever yards per carry is a whatever stat, but not he's just never really been an explosive player. Let's put it that way. I my expectation for Daryl Williams is he's going to play. He's probably going to play more than McKinnon, but that you know he's probably going to get eight carries and a couple of catches and have 40 total yards because he's not going to be very efficient on those touches in terms of yardage. He could be solid for fantasy if he catches four balls and, you know, at least four balls and, and scores and get those high value touches. Like he seems like he could certainly have that type of profile, but it would be sort of the surprisingly solid fantasy line because of high value touches as opposed to like the ceiling. Right. And, and so what I mean is 15 PPR points or something, which which is fine. Like, that's great to just have stash somewhere and be able to use. But that feels like more or less his sort of upside outcome. The other way to look at this is like with McKinnon being the one who actually gained a larger, sh- like a larger snap share in this game. There's scenarios, I think, where McKinnon takes over for a decent percentage of CH's role that uh, they've kind of been not using him in preparation for if this situation arose, like they like Williams and sort of the role they have him in Williams could certainly see more snaps. And I think we'll see more snaps, but McKinnon's the one that gains more. And that's what we saw in week five is sort of the point I'm making. And then McKinnon also potentially gets some of the more exciting touches, the swing passes, some of the other stuff that has the potential to be more explosive plays. And he does have, you know, speed and he has more explosiveness. And so even if he is on like the 40% side of a 60, 40 split, I think I would probably rather be playing McKinnon in the sense that he's the guy who has the potential for 20 plus yard gains on, you know, eight total touches, whereas Williams might only get 10 or 12 total touches and doesn't really have the potential for, for the big plays. Does that follow? I'm, I'm kind it follows of... completely, right? It <laughs> follows completely. And the reason that I'm having a hard time being on, in on McKinnon is that I was in on McKinnon in preseason when he supposedly looked fantastic in training camp. And I was in on Clyde Edwards Alaire because they claimed that he was taking a step forward. We know with CEH that the whole logic for drafting him in the first place, or at least the rationale that they put out there for drafting him ahead of about four borderline star talents was that he fit so much what they wanted to do. And he was going to be this passing game weapon that really allowed Patrick Mahomes to have an outlet to add in these plays that Andy Reid has always run so successfully with Brian Westbrook, with Sean McCoy, even to an extent with Kareem Hunt when he was off to such a fast start with the Chiefs before all of that stuff went down. That didn't really come to fruition when he was a rookie. He had some injuries toward the end of the season. We saw some of the struggles that he had around the goal line. And so you're thinking, I mean, he might lose a little bit of that, but the receiving upside and the overall workload in terms of Andy Reid wanting to use the main back and the incentive that the Chiefs have to make this pick not look terrible. Because this was a pick that looked awful at the time. I mean, I think I think everybody hated it. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Uh, certainly fantasy participants loved the thesis to where you know he moves up ahead of Jonathan Taylor in rookie drafts, which I would never have gone that far because I mean Jonathan Taylor is just simply too good, right? But Edwards Alaire seemed like he was in this great situation, and then none of that materialized, and none of the thesis for McKinnon materialized as the season started to go. Like you mentioned, I mean the snaps were so low. I put in this week's zero RB uh, watch list that you know McKinnon said new. Cr- season highs in targets and carries with one and two and you know baby steps right so <laughs> I, 
I just don't know what the Chiefs are doing with this. We know we watch every week that they're almost facing these prevent defenses. And if anything, you're like, well, just run your running back across the line of scrimmage, dump the ball to him. Now he's in this gap in the defense and he's beyond the line of scrimmage. But that's not what they've done with Edwards Alaire. They don't look like they think Edwards Alaire can actually be that weapon in the passing game. One of the things that you find out is that just because someone caught a bunch of passes in college, if that was really just the result of Joe Burrow and Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase, then it doesn't mean you even have the athleticism to be a passing game weapon in the NFL. So I don't even know that they're not using him in the passing game because they don't want to pass to the running back. I think that in part, they feel like they have to play him. They're giving him handles, but they just don't, I mean, he's just not good. And unfortunately that's almost looked like it's the same situation with McKinnon where they've just been sending such strong signals that Daryl Williams is the best guy that they have. And, and like you mentioned, I mean, the injury covers up a little bit of just how bad I think my take was on CEH going into this season, but before the injury, I mean, he dropped into a rotation with guys who shouldn't even necessarily be, you know, above practice squads for NFL players. So that's just, a, I mean, that's a really bad sign. And that's one of the reasons why I think there might be some fire with the smoke of this Marlon Mack situation, because Mack, I think, was always a little bit of an undervalued back at the NFL level. And then the Colts make the somewhat surprising decision. But again, I mean, Taylor had fallen to a point where, I mean, he was such a clear pick. You know, you have guys like Christian McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley going in the top 10 picks. And then you have Jonathan Taylor going in the second round. It's like, I mean, that's an obvious pick for any NFL team, regardless of who you have. But they pick Taylor. Taylor is going to go over the top of him. Then Mac has this serious Achilles injury. And one of the things that we know about the Achilles injuries is that you have about a year to come back, but then you have another six to 12 months in getting the full explosiveness back. You know, so you may not have a problem in terms of the kind of the health of the knee, but being what you need to be for competing with NFL players. We talk all the time about, you know, we watch the games, everybody is extremely athletic, but then, you know, some of the guys, even the big time guys will look a little sluggish. And so when people like Tyree Kill and Kadarius Tony and Rondell Moore, you know, when they do their stuff, it really jumps out at you because they're so athletic. Well, I mean, that athleticism advantage will make a difference. Mack was a very athletic player before the injury in the two games where they've really kind of tried to showcase him for trades. And one of the reasons why I think the Chiefs might be on this trade is that it just seems like the Colts are going to trade him. I mean, we talked about it on Wednesday, but you can't be taking Jonathan Taylor off the field hardly at all when you know that, I mean, you've been having a hard time getting him the full number of touches that he needs anyway. And Hines is an above average type of player. And they're not getting him the touches. The fact that Mac is in there, I mean, they're going to trade him. And the Chiefs almost seem like they were looking at this as a possibility before the Edwards-Alaire injury. One of the things about the rumors is that, I mean, Edwards-Alaire sounds like he's more or less fine. And so that's maybe the other reason why my enthusiasm for McKinnon isn't super high, because he's probably just a couple-week bridge if he even hits there. And hopefully he does. I mean, the Chiefs need an injection of this kind of talent. But in this game script where we saw against the Bills, Another situation in which it would have made sense to really get the receiving back involved, it still wasn't that. It was guys like McCole Hardman who really finally had the type of NFL game that we've been looking for for so long. And so, you know, one of the things on the canon is he could be you know, next week's or the weeks after Hardman where it's like, finally, you know, now things are back to kind of what we had expected. But McKinnon is is much more of a veteran, obviously, than Hardman is. Hardman, a little bit of a delay breakout, but maybe finally happening I guess I just think with the running back situation in the Chiefs, we may see them go in such a completely different direction because their team needs talent in order to deal with the defenses that Hill and Kelsey are facing. Yeah, it's funny. The the kind of unsaid there, but implication that you've certainly said before is, you know, you are a Chiefs fan and you would have definitely liked to see them have taken Jonathan Taylor at 32 overall instead of Clyde Edwards Hilaire a couple of years ago. Uh, I had a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, Nicole, I'm a, actually a little bit less enthused about. Uh, it was very nice to see the targets and the receptions. He was not very explosive. 6.3 yards per target in that game. He only gets 76 yards on, on 12 targets. His dot is 7.2. And so part of the reason I was excited about Hardman and the idea about being excited about him in the last couple of years was like, if the snaps get up, he's been so efficient. He's been able to actually make these big plays because he's running downfield routes. This year they have him in the, like the Sammy Watkins role. He's running a bunch of underneath stuff. So he's had some uh, – he had another game where he led the team in targets back in week two. He had eight 
eight targets. I think he led the team that week as well. Or, or maybe he didn't this past week. But at any rate, uh, he has had some games where he's been more involved target-wise, but we haven't seen the efficiency. His his yards per target for the year right now, 6.5, uh, 6.6. You know, year one, he was 13 yards per target. Last year, he was nine yards per target still. And it was like, okay, well, if we can actually see this guy get up close to 100 targets and he's explosive and his TD rate will be strong because he's explosive and because he's running vertical routes, this year we're seeing the target rate come up, but we're not actually seeing any of the, you know, the air yards basically because his A dot is so low. And do you think any of this is to do with some of the defenses they're facing? Just kind of looking at this game against the Bills, and we know that the Bills, I mean, the Bills are a fantastic team, right? Unlike the Chiefs, I mean, they're very balanced. They have a very good defense, uh, but you have the route numbers much, much more NFL players, and then the intended air yards with the targets for Hill and Hardman being kind of similar. The air yards for those two guys against the Bills are similar as well. Do you think Bills force both of those yeah. guys into the kinds of routes and targets that we wouldn't really want for them going forward? I mean, certainly that's that's possible, and we could see uh, we could see Hardman tick up in that regard. But I don't think for the year. I mean, I, Hardman's eight off for the year is seven point two. He has not had like many deep shots. Um, I don't think that's true of Hill for the year. There's been games certainly where they've been forced to throw underneath more, but I think what's happened is like Hardman's running routes underneath constantly. The games where they can get downfield, they're going downfield to Hill. The games where they can't, they're going underneath more to Hardman or underneath the Hill. They're just not able to get down the field at all. Like that's sort of the way that I've been reading into the way he's been used. It certainly doesn't mean that it's you know necessarily correct or that it will stick, right? That's one of the big things we've talked about with roll and all those things. And Hill has a little bit of a thigh contusion. It, it could be the case that Hardman is playing the Hill role if if Hill needs to miss time. And in that scenario, he's once again probably running deep routes. You know, he's their speed guy. So there's ways that this can change, and and it's not something I feel like really strongly about. But they do give the impression that anytime they give Hardman deeper, more complicated routes that and he is targeted the ball is nowhere close to him and i mean they're not trying to show him up obviously but you get the sense that maybe he didn't run those those routes correctly like underneath we can get him the ball right that's sort of that's sort of my concern is that we we have some skill issues with hardman that i was sort of willing to overlook in the regard that he was running deep routes with patrick mahomes but if he's not capable of of that anymore you know whether it's a skill issue or whatever a role issue now he's just another guy who's running underneath routes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that's that's a concern for him, at least for me. The the points you made about McKinnon and the receiving, I think, were really, really interesting. We didn't see it in this game at all. And that's a good point. They could have they needed to throw underneath in this game. They were the Bills were pretty clearly making them move the ball down the field slowly. Uh, and then you know, you'd have this massive dichotomy when the Bills had the ball where they were able to score down the field quickly. You know, I think we talked about how Josh Allen's first nine completions had over 260 passing yards, nearly 30 yards of completion on his first nine completions. It was like, okay, we could just score at will, and then you guys do this long, slow drive. And the Chiefs are like, we did get some stops in that game, though, which is an advantage for us above what we've been doing. Right? We don't care how fast you score; we just want to every once in a while force a punt. Right? Exactly. But yeah, the fact that that didn't equate to any McKinnon touches is interesting. But also your comments on Edwards Alaire are interesting. And I guess the upside case for McKinnon then becomes that he starts to make some explosive plays in the passing game to the degree that they they really do show us that the concern with Edwards Alaire is that he's not good enough to be a featured part of their passing game. But now McKinnon winds up being a playmaker, right? And maybe he doesn't still have those jets or that ability. And, and to your point, everything they've shown us doesn't suggest he will in stealing signals. I wrote that I, I'm not really excited about Daryl Williams or Jarek McKinnon. I think they're going to just deprioritize the running backs entirely and let Patrick Mahomes do a lot more. I think we'll see Tyreek Hill, if healthy, lined up in the backfield a little bit over this stretch, like we've seen with some other teams and we've seen from him in the past. We've, we've definitely seen the Chiefs do that. Uh, we've seen Nico Hardman in the backfield with the Chiefs before. Uh, and we've been seeing it with, you know, DJ Moore and Rondell Moore. And we've been talking about that when the when the lead backs are banged up in some of these offenses, they're taking their versatile receivers and putting them in the backfield. That might be what we wind up seeing. And if that's the case, like look, and if Daryl Williams and Jarek McKinnon are splitting, you know, 12 total running back touches, it's there's not going to be any running back value here. Even as good as this offense is, 
But if somebody is good, assuming they don't trade for Mac, I, I agree with you. If they if they trade for Mac, he's he's the more exciting one. It's just a, a, a tough window because it sounds like CEH will be back in the minimum. They they basically said I saw some comment somewhere that was like we put him on IR to give him time to get healthy, and then there was a follow up question that was like, do you think he'll require more than the minimum? And it was like, no, pretty pretty firmly like no, we just put him on IR because. I think they just wanted to get rid of him for three weeks. Right, and it's almost like now we don't have to worry about playing him and dealing with those questions for you know a couple for of three weeks. three weeks. Right, but so they would have to trade for Mac ASAP and then get him up to speed, and they, they obviously have not yet through Thursday of this week. get it. And so maybe it would have to be Monday of next week and get him up to speed, and I don't know. Seems seems tough if, if uh, CH really is back in three weeks. It's, but, so, but I think you've made the case – in some of our conversations that that Mac could eventually just displace CEH if they do go through with that trade, right? That's the direction I think the trade would have to, to be indicating. And, you know, one of the things is just, it's embarrassing to make such a bad first round pick, but just like making a bad pick in fantasy, the faster you come off of your mistake, the better you're going to be. And so I think that the Chiefs, I mean, they've, They've given this a chance. And it's not like he's necessarily a, a terrible player. I mean, he could be a good committee back, perhaps. And there's a value to that, right? I mean, it's not like you have to cut him outright from the Chiefs or something. But I, I do think that that's the direction that they're going. I mean, I hope not. I hope not for him. I hope not for the Chiefs. I mean, this would be great if this was yet another situation in which I was wrong on the Chiefs' backfield. But it does feel like it's going in that direction. And more broadly, with, with your lack of excitement for McKinnon, you would – you're, you're essentially saying you don't see a lot of running back value in, in the backfield either. I don't. It, it's not completely apples to apples because, you know, one of the things we did see in this game again with the Bills is that Josh Allen was willing to get out there and create some big plays as a runner at the quarterback position. Patrick Mahomes actually, you know, does those jogging first downs as well, but it's a, a different kind of dynamic with the quarterbacks in the running game. But I don't think this is going to be that dissimilar to what we see with the Bills and their running backs and how they score points. And the Bills running backs are a lot better. I mean, maybe maybe I'm completely incorrect on this and out on the island. But I think that Zach Moss and Devin Singletary are good. And yet, you know, it continues to be an issue for fantasy. And so with the Chiefs, if you have bad running backs and you have a team that has other ways to score, I'm just not sure that you, you really need to go after these guys. Now, again, it... it we talked about the injuries to the stars. You may be in a situation where you have injuries to your other running backs who aren't stars and just need someone to plug in there who's playing on Sunday. When we're, we're into the buys and very quickly, you know, you go through and especially if you've got a, an unfortunate imbalance, I mean, you could have a third of your team on a buy any given week and at an individual position, it could be worse than that. So, you know, rostering people like obviously Williams, but then McKinnon, I'm not arguing against that necessarily, but I, I do think that in terms of, you know, looking for these upside guys and looking for the next Cordero Patterson and that kind of thing. Uh, it would surprise me if McKinnon is the guy, but I agree. I, I, I agree. No, that was sort of what I talked about in signals. The the point I was making sort of at the top about coming to this conclusion and right before waiver lock was that I was surprised at how cheap McKinnon was looking like he was going to go. And then, I, and then seeing what he went for, he went for, I don't think I saw anything higher than about 160 bucks in a you know a thousand dollar budget but a lot of double digit bids a lot of 49 you know 60 and it's like i yeah i i, I was certainly comfortable picking up mckinnon for six or eight percent of my budget just to see because he's the one that i think if if there's a back in this backfield right now assuming they don't get mac that does something essentially here in week six where we're like oh he's gonna have some value and i might be willing to play him in week seven to me, it's it's more likely to be McKinnon than it is Daryl Williams. Well, then we have some interesting uh, sort of deep backfields or committee backfields on the NFC side as well that could be relevant for fantasy in a couple of weeks and some options maybe to make some trades going into the buy. We'll hit that after the Colin Kelly here, the executive producer of the Road of His Radio Podcast Network and co-host of the Road of His Overtime Podcast, along with the phenomenal Sean Siegel. The wait is over, the NFL season is here, and there's no better time than the present to sign up for a Rotoviz NFL Pass. You'll get access to all of our content, all of our tools, and everything you need to help you for that in-season success. As a loyal podcast listener, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Rotoviz NFL Pass. 
just by adding the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Go to rotaviz.com forward slash podcast for more information. Let's go get those championships. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Then another team that is in disarray, and fortunately for them, they now have the week six bye to try and figure out who's healthy at quarterback, who gives them the best chance to win at quarterback, you know, what they want to do at the running back position. How do they get back into this NFC West battle with the Cardinals and Rams looking like two of the best teams in football? The San Francisco 49ers didn't look great against Arizona this past week. Trey Lance did a lot of rushing. He still would have had a decent day. If, I mean, he got to like the one millimeter line on that final fourth down carry there, that would have gotten him to a decent fantasy performance. His reality performance, especially with passing accuracy, left something to be desired. And that takes a little bit out of the running game as well. And especially his goal line carries and all of those types of carries take something out of the running game. But we got a lot of information about where they want to be with their starting running back. Elijah Mitchell is back healthy and he immediately goes back ahead of Trey Sermon who I mean, I'm probably biased, but but Sermon was breaking off seven-yard carries on first down throughout his opportunity. Mitchell struggled here in week five, but yet now with him, I think just being the very clear starter, there's some real upside with Jimmy Garoppolo. With just this 49ers offense, I think is going to be what they've been at least in spurts throughout the rest of the season. And so this week six bye, especially them coming off such a bad game, I think there are a lot of buying opportunities here. Yeah, and I think Mitchell's worth buying. I mean, one one of the things that I would highlight and I've talked about uh, in signals sort of throughout is that it was really interesting to me that when Trey Sermon was basically the last running back left, he only got up to a 59% snap share in his first start, and then it went down to a 51% snap share in his second start. Kyle Juice check, I always get made fun of for how I say that, was up to 82% of the snaps in week four. And I know people have commented, look, he's always had a role. He has always had a role. 82% was, I believe, a career high. I can't remember what I wrote in signals the week before last. It was, a, uh, I, I think, a career high in one of only maybe four or five games that he's ever been over 70% snap share. So like, he's always had a role where he plays in this like 50% snap share range as a fullback, but he was adding like 30% of the snaps playing running back. And in, in the first start that Herman got, he didn't actually start uh juice check got the first carry 
And I agree with you, it has been a little bizarre because Sermon has looked okay. But um, you go back to week one, they made him inactive. Elijah Mitchell played 64% of the snaps with Jermichael Hasty playing a lot. And obviously Mostert playing just a little bit before he got hurt. Then he played 61% in the second game where he got hurt and was in and out of the lineup. Hasty played 36%. They actually had other backs involved. And so it was interesting to see that Sermon like did not crest that 60% snap rate range when he was the only back playing essentially for both of the weeks that he got the opportunity. And then it swings back this week where Mitchell is all the way up at 68%. Juice check snap rate is back down to 65%, sort of his normal range. And Sermon plays only 3% of the snaps. They completely push him out of the game plan. That to me indicates like they were never really comfortable with Trey Sermon and they have been comfortable, more comfortable with Elijah Mitchell since week one, essentially. Uh, with their willingness to get him up to even a, a fuller workload, even when there's been other backs available in those games from hasty in the first two weeks to sermon here in week five, they're more comfortable just running it with, uh, you know, letting Elijah Mitchell kind of take the backfield and run with it. What was interesting about Mitchell in the first couple weeks was that hasty played a little bit more on passing downs and in the, in the green zone, he was getting sort of the high value touch looks. He got a short touchdown in week one. Uh, Mitchell had a short, touchdown opportunity in week two that I believe got overturned, but that only came after hasty got a carry prior and had had a long run down inside the tent and stayed on the field. And so it was looking like they thought hasty was their better back in close. What we saw in this game here in week five with Mitchell back in the lineup was two things. One, he ran a season high 46% of the routes were routes per drop back. So he was actually out in the past game a little bit more than he had been in weeks one and two. And then he was also on the field in the green zone. He talked about Trey Lance getting the carry from the five-yard line. He also did a sprint out where he got stoned right at the goal line on fourth down. That sprint out was uh, Elijah Mitchell on the field running into the flat and looking looking like the first option was to just throw to the running back in the flat like we see so often. He was sort of covered, and then Lance tried to run. But Mitchell was on the field for the the other two plays in that four down series, which was their only series in that close and in at the five yard line or closer. Mitchell was in for three of those four plays. He was not in for the straight QB draw. It was Kyle, Kyle Juszczyk, who was the back and then basically the lead blocker. It was a you know designed QB run. But the other two passing plays on those four downs, Mitchell was on the field. So I was really encouraged by that, that he played snaps in close, which to me indicated, look, he might have more touchdown potential than, I even thought maybe in weeks one and two when they were putting hasty in in those situations. And you, you I would have thought that maybe Sermon would have been the hasty in that, in that equation, right? That Sermon would have been in from the five-yard line. And then he is the more physical back. But they, they stuck with Mitchell there, and they were running him on more routes. Plus, he's just playing a ton of snaps and getting the low-value touches. Looks like he could have some pretty solid upside. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the role there is just so favorable as we go forward. And I do think that with... At this point, it certainly looks like they plan to go back to Garoppolo and give Lance some more time. It's something where they don't really want to have him exposed as a passer yet. They want him to be able to get some more opportunities in practice to just grow, improve, and not have his confidence blown by being thrown out there when he's not ready. If they do that and if they can get Brandon Ayuk going again, you know, hopefully when he's eligible to come back off of IR, George Kittle will do that and they will have this dynamic passing game with Debo, Ayuk, and Kittle. And then I think it becomes more difficult to key on the runners. One of the reasons why I really thought that Sermon was potentially going to be the guy is that while he wasn't flashy exactly, and obviously he doesn't have that big strike ability at the NFL level. We saw him create some huge runs in the college playoffs, but looking at what they're doing here and you go and you look at the advanced staff explorer for people who like the broken tackle element, the force miss tackle element and feel like, you know, those guys are going to catch the coach's eye and keep playing. I mean, sermon is more than double Mitchell in both categories, you know, broken tackle percentage, missed tackle percentage. Now we're still operating with a very limited number of touches, right? But the idea here is that some of these touches are going to stick in the coach's mind and they're going to want that guy out there sermon, the bigger guy and someone who perhaps can fight through and make some of these plays. But the other thing that we have seen is that he's averaging more yards before contact. He's appeared to demonstrate better vision on these plays. So there are a lot of things where I really thought that sermon looked pretty good in my thought after he was benched early is that you know they're sending a message to this guy who supposedly i mean there were reports that sermon looked really good at least in the first half of training camp now uh, we're in a completely different 
situation, right? If there was a message sent and then he goes out and plays pretty well and then he's benched again, I mean, that that no longer looks like it's the dynamic. It looks like Elijah Mitchell is the guy. And even though Mitchell hasn't done much so far, the fact that he could be involved in the passing game and the fact that he does have that speed, right? And we know that one of the things that the 49ers want to do in this offense is create big plays in the running game. That's one of the reasons why Raheem Mostert has always been so good. It's one of the reasons why Jeff Wilson has these you know, occasional explosions when he is the main guy. You know, we could be looking at a couple of games like that for Mitchell here sometime in the next couple of months and you get those games. I'm guessing you could probably get them at, at a discount this week when players need people to play. You, you know, it's going to be hard to get off of those $900 um, first week free agent bids or if you were lucky enough to have them stashed and the initial enthusiasm of having gotten the 49ers starter you know all of those emotional things play into it but there are going to be a lot of situations now where people are going to feel like they need to go in a different direction yeah i completely agree i think he's a great target right now yeah no it, it has been very interesting with sermon one of the things that um our buddy peter said said on on chip chasing this week as we were sort of talking through some of this was you look at how much they seem to hate Trey Sermon and, and how banged up Elijah Mitchell has been. And Raheem Mostert was, was going to have a monster year. I mean, like he, we thought it was going to be Mostert and Sermon, right? And then Mostert gets hurt right away. I think he's totally right about that. I mean, the, the it's like they're using Mitchell like they wanted to use Mostert, right? Because he's the faster, more explosive back. Yeah, so bummer for anyone who was was in on Mostert based on the way that everyone else has gotten hurt in this backfield. It probably would have been pretty nice. And just the way that they've been reluctant with Sermon, uh, it probably would have been a nice season for Mostert. There was another back that I wanted to mention, but uh, you might be thinking of the same one because we talked a little bit before the show about it. But I, I, I'm excited about the Atlanta backfield, which we have reason to be very excited about Cordero Patterson. He's absolutely crushing. But with him doing a little bit more splitting out wide and those types of things, he's very clearly the number two running back as well. He's running from under center. He's doing all of that stuff. But he is 30. Mike Davis is, you know, I don't know, 70, close to close to 70. I think he's uh, – how old is he? I don't know. He's at least – he's close to 30. I think he's 29 or something. Uh, a couple of older backs. And from the, the last couple of weeks, I think we've gotten some indication from them. This is something that I, I you know, try to look at that Wayne Gallman looks like pretty clearly the number three, which we probably already knew, but Gallman wasn't necessarily playing in the first couple of weeks, wasn't even active. You know, there's other situations like we, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, Benjamin, a lot more than anything that he's done would maybe warrant. We don't necessarily even know if, you know, Benjamin's the number three in Arizona right now, because they were using Jonathan Ward a little in the preseason. They still have him rostered. It looks to me very clearly like Wayne Gallman is the number three. And so if something were to happen in Atlanta to open up opportunity and, and particularly to Davis, I don't think Cordell Patterson winds up in an 80% snap share role. It just doesn't seem likely. He still is probably the very, um, you know, high value type player that he has been and his role probably expands, but there seems to me to be pass for Wayne Gallman to wind up actually being very productive. And the reason I think he's worth targeting is that Atlanta as a team has generated a ton of high value touches. Now, some of that is because Patterson's gotten receptions and touches in the passing game where maybe he's not even playing running back, but this high value touch stat that we talk about all the time, I reference a lot. You can find it in the stealing signals app at Rotoviz. It's looking at all receptions and all touches inside the 10 yard line. That's where the you know running back upside comes from. We've talked about it before. I have recognize in the past that looking at it from a team perspective it, it can be really helpful for like stashes and right now Wayne Gallman's going into a buy I imagine he got dropped by anyone who was stashing him or is available in a lot of leagues I don't even know if you need to stash him going into the buy maybe coming out of the buy but he's a guy that I think long term looking two months down the road I want to have stashed because I it's probably not a really high likelihood that both Mike Davis and Cordero Patterson are able to make it through a 17 game season without getting banged up a little bit and I do think this is a backfield that where the high value touches are, are indicative of, of sort of a, a situation where, yeah, they have Ridley and they have Pitts, but they don't have a ton else. They're going to use the running backs in, in as a part of their offense. Matt Ryan also has been very willing to check down. So the, you know, the immobility of Matt Ryan uh, should help the targets there. Uh, they, they've shown a willingness to use these backs in the, in the green zone and in close and for touchdowns and, Anyway, especially if, if something were to happen to Davis and Patterson at some point, we see that with certain teams where the number three running back winds up the guy. 
and those two can't necessarily be considered, you know, the the most likely backs in the league to stay healthy at their, you know, at their ages and and all that. I, I just it seems to me like there's a lot of scenarios where Wayne Gallman could wind up in a pretty valuable role where he's getting receptions, he's potentially getting touchdowns. He was pretty good for the Giants last year. He's one of my favorite stashers right now. And it's interesting you mentioned the uh, several of those elements of it. One of the things that we know and that Blair writes about from time to time is that uh, market share of expected points is more predictive of the next week than actual EP at the running back position because you know sometimes these game strips can fool us in terms of how much value is there to the running back position on any given team because every week's a little bit different. The Philadelphia Eagles are a good example of that where some weeks it looks like there's a lot of value there for Miles Sanders and Kenny Gainwell to split, and then some weeks there is not. The difference with the Atlanta Falcons is they just have been very, very insistent that these guys are going to both be involved. And I think that you can also look at team trends and the way that teams play these guys and say, I, you know, I don't think that this is going to be something that they change in a big way. Now, I do think that they're going to de-emphasize the running backs to an extent, but even if you do that to an extent, it's there's still a lot there, right? I mean, it's it almost blows your mind to think in terms of Cordero Patterson being a top five running back. And then to think that also Mike Davis currently ranks number six in expected points. Right. So there's been a huge amount of value there for both guys. Now, Cordell Patterson's like plus 30. Mike Davis is minus 29. So they're giving a they're, one guy is getting a lot extra. The other is giving a lot away. But then, you know, you go and you even look at this last week where they moved more of the opportunities in the direction of the more efficient player, which again is what we'd expect. Cordell Patterson has 23 ops. Mike Davis, 18. There are 31 and 24% of the team opportunities there. Davis, even with Patterson being so involved as a receiver, Davis has the five targets. He has the 13 attempts. You know, you look at those negative efficiency numbers and say, okay, well, a little bit of that for some of the guys who are really struggling is fluky. We've talked about some of these stars who consistently do it. We're not necessarily selling them just because they're efficient. That wouldn't make sense. For some of the guys like Mike Davis, you might think, well, that would actually be a buy because he can't state that. Uh, inefficient for the whole season, but he could lose touches to Wayne Gallman. Gallman plays three snaps in this one, I think, does have a carry. But as you mentioned, I mean, not only would Gallman have a lot of opportunity here, I think, if Davis goes down, he could also work into just having a little bit of standalone value, even with the other two guys healthier. But the main thing is I think that, I mean, Gallman could take touches away because it's hard to believe there's a big talent gap here. We saw Gallman come out last season when... Saquon Barkley was injured and actually played quite well for the New York Giants. And so, I mean, is he a starting caliber player? Probably not. Is he above average backup? Probably. And so that would be a situation kind of almost the opposite end of the spectrum from what we talked about with the Kansas City Chiefs, where you can almost say maybe nobody would have value in Kansas City. In Atlanta, almost any running back being plugged in there, and probably not any running back, but Wayne Gallman is, is the kind of guy where you plug him into this offense, and I agree with you completely. I think he can score some points. That's, I mean, you said it very, very well. And for anyone who, um, you know, we, we obviously talk about these stats a lot, but for anyone who was wondering what Sean was saying with the pluses and the minuses, when he says EP, he's talking expected points. That's the expected fantasy points. We're talking purely in fantasy point terms, what those numbers are. So it's expected fantasy points. Mike Davis has it based on where his touches have come on the field and everything. His expected points are very, very high, but he has been negative in terms of the actual fantasy points that he scored. Cordero Patterson has been very positive and gained fantasy points over his expectate expectation based on his touches. Uh, and that's, you know, the efficiency side that we're talking about the skill level, there's going to be expected fantasy points. And I agree with you, you know, like ba basically what we're saying is there's going to be expected fantasy points regardless. And Wayne Gallman is good enough to at least be average probably. Right. At, at, whereas, you know, in, to your point, Davis might be a buy too. We'd think he would be good enough to be average. It's kind of odd that he's been so negative. He's not necessarily bad, Mike Davis, but he is one of the most fragile starters in the league. And so Gallman being there is, uh, you know, I think a really interesting stash. There's there's not always clarity in the in the you know sort of in the depth chart about who might benefit if an injury happened. Or uh, to your point, I think it's a great additional point that Gallman could just work his way into a bigger role. Especially if they're going on to a buy. If maybe they make a decision coming out of the buy that. We want to play Mike Gallman more, or Wayne Gallman more over Mike Davis. They did use him a little bit in week four. He he had six carries. He rushed for 29 yards. He looked 
more explosive on those six carries that Mike Davis has looked in all of his touches combined. Who, who are some other backs you want to talk about when I when I went into Goleman? Well, the other back here or the other backfield that maybe is a little bit interesting in Montgomery's absence, which hopefully will be a short absence, is this breakdown that we had last week between Damian Williams and Khalil Herbert, where Williams scores the touchdown, he gets all of the targets, but Herbert plays more snaps. He goes 18 carries for 75 yards and just you know flashing a, a little bit of ability there we have this interesting quarterback situation with the bears where fields is doing some good things but not blowing up the way that you know deshaun watson did a few years ago for example which i know all of us i wasn't aware i i, I was i was not aware that this was happening in chicago <laughs> who's this who's this fields person that you're speaking of damian williams too it just thinking about Kansas City. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Another guy that I was way too on when he was the second round pick for them. So looking, looking at this backfield, do you have some enthusiasm about the Bears offense? The running back position has not been as destroyed by the things that they have done, regardless of who has been there to get the touches as the receiving position has been. And certainly Allen Robinson right now, someone who has been an unfortunate fantasy selection. Yeah. A couple Key notes there that I talked about in signals were that Herbert actually ran some routes. A lot of times we see this with rookies where they're not, we were just talking about with Elijah Mitchell kind of back in week one and week two where Hasty was running the routes and it was like, yeah, they want the veteran in on the passing passing downs and in, in the red zone. Herbert, they didn't drop back a lot because they're not throwing, right? They, they only threw 21 passes or something, but it was something like 10 to seven on the routes. I don't have it here, but so, so Damian Williams gets all the targets, three targets, two receptions, actually like a really high rate of targets per route you know he was only running i think something like 10 routes and that's sometimes just variance right like herbert ran seven routes and didn't get targeted and i don't know my point is i don't think that williams clearly has the receiving work locked down and then if i'm not mistaken herbert also got a green zone touch i'm going to try to pull this up really quick but herbert also seemed to be getting more work as the game went on i actually had damian williams rushing attempts uh prop the over on 14 and a half rushing attempts. He did wind up getting 16 and winning it for me, but there was a point where he was at like 12 pretty early in the game. And then Herbert got a carry. And then Herbert was getting carries. So I'm like, dude, just get four more carries to David Williams. Like quit giving the ball to Cleo Herbert. Cause you know, I had the over Herbert. Definitely. I didn't actually break down their touches, but Herbert definitely to me appeared to be getting a lot more work later in the game. It's almost as if to your point, he looked good and they were going his way because of that. That's, I, I think, a very positive sign for Herbert as well. But yeah, the big the big notes that I had in signals were that it seemed like their work was more like 50-50, not segmented towards the high-value touches, even though Williams is the one who got the TD and got the two receptions and all three of the targets, that you know maybe it wasn't actually that clear uh, in terms of you know who was doing what. Yeah, so he, I, I thought that he'd look good this last week, and I is rostered now in a lot of deep leagues but if you're in a medium-sized league you know keep an eye on how that backfield develops uh, in the absence of montgomery and he did get a he did get a green zone touch and damian williams got three so williams did get more work down in the green zone they had four running back touches down there in this game uh, and the seven to ten routes was also accurate based on what i'm looking at here then what are your thoughts on the detroit backfield we know that in a very favorable manner here that DeAndre Swift is actually number three in expected points behind Harris and Henry you mentioned that a little bit on Wednesday. He has been getting a lot of the extremely high value touches, which allow him to get into that situation. But Jamal Williams has looked good in a very low touch role. And I think that if you have a guy whom you thought maybe was going to be the guy because the lions really did talk up that, I mean, you know, it was sort of a one, a one B, but they've tried to make it sound like he was going to be the starter. And I think in their defense, they've actually done things exactly how they said they were going to do. I mean, he starts the games. He does get the first and second down carries a huge percentage of the time. He looks good. Now they have the injuries to the offensive line mounting now. And so while, one of the reasons why people liked Williams was because it, I mean, it's just very difficult at the NFL level for an offensive line to be so good 
that it makes a difference so good that it moves the defenders, you know, off the ball. I mean, you have offensive lines that are so bad that they, they can really limit what an offense can do. But to be an offensive line like the Kansas City Chiefs had under Dick Vermeil when Priest Holmes is annihilating uh, the NFL, and that's not to take anything away from Priest Holmes. I mean, he, he used that offensive line perfectly and was an absolute star during that stretch. But it's difficult to do. Now the Lions have lost a little bit of that. And, and I guess my point there was that the Lions' offensive line did look very good within the context of a team that otherwise is devoid of talent, right? So they were doing their job. They were giving some opportunities for Williams and Swift. Williams has looked good there. And I think that maybe there's an opportunity, right? Because we know that Williams was actually involved in the receiving game to an extent, uh, even there in Green Bay when, I mean, Aaron Jones this year has has looked phenomenal as a receiver. So we know that he has this three down ability. And I, mean, I guess the last thing I should do is bring this up and, and risk any chance of jinxing it. But I mean, DeAndre Swift, it's not a given that he'll stay healthy. And I mean, Williams is one of these guys where you can probably buy pretty low now because the value of his touches within those games is so minimal that even though he looks good, I mean, he's not fantasy viable, you know, that could change on one play. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I'm thinking about this backfield again, goes back to that team high value touch thing where Detroit, we, we sometimes anchor to, you know, the, the first event in a sequence, right? The primacy effect. They had 18 team high value touches in week one, and both these backs crushed. That to this point still remains the single game high for any team uh, Thursday night football of this week, notwithstanding, because we are uh, recording on on Thursday here. But yeah, the highest that we've seen from any team all year, the second highest is 15. I mean, it's like well, well above the next highest game. But since then, every game uh, since has been at least nine high value touches. They've been right at nine, three times they were at 12 in week three, but that's really good. Still, there's only two teams in the entire league that are averaging more than nine high value touches for their backfields per game. It's Atlanta and Detroit. We've mentioned them both now on this, on this uh, uh, show. And Detroit has done that every single week, excuse me, not averaging more than nine, averaging more than 9.2. I have that, I have that stat slightly wrong, but Detroit's hitting nine every week. That's that's high. That's top five in its own right, and they're doing it every week. There is, I think, plenty of uh, high value touch potential in this backfield. Plenty of you know a big enough pie, like like you were referencing. And Swift is getting a really strong percentage of that in a way that I I think you have to be really encouraged by, even if Williams is you know, like certainly it could change if Williams was not there. Then Swift can be an absolute monster. But so far, uh, you know, going to the Stealing Signals tool, looking at the first five weeks, DeAndre Swift has 64% of the team's high-value touches. Jamal Williams has 36%. And Williams has been involved a little bit in in catching some passes and, and doing some of those things. But you look at, you know, the green zone touches, 9 to 5 in favor of Swift. Like, you, you would think that Williams being sort of the early down back would be the guy that also gets those close touches but no, Swift is the one that's getting almost two to one more. He has almost two to one more receptions. So he's right up there among the league leaders in high value touches overall. He is not at the league leaders. And to your point, if something were to happen to Williams, he not only would probably become the league leader, he would probably be clearly ahead, almost in this like Christian McCaffrey range of high value touch upside. So yeah, I'm still very, very high on Swift. And and one of the interesting elements of that is that perhaps the Lions were not expected to be able to do that because their offense isn't good. But that's one of the reasons why we discussed, we thought that there were portions of the Lions offense or the way that they would have to play because their strengths are so clearly in one area that would lead in this direction. And yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this more. I'm gonna add, I want to add a little bit more color to it. Williams actually leads Swift in low value touches, 49 to 45. And they're both, I mean, God, this stealing signals tool is great. They're both right in line in terms of high value touch per snap, but Swift is playing more. They're, they're both right at 0.15, 0.16, good numbers in terms of high value touch per snap. But that tells you, again, the, the, the offense is going to generate high value touches for their backs when they're on the field. But Williams also is, is just when he's on the field, he's getting a lot of these low value touches. He has more than Swift, but Swift is just slapping him on the high value touches. If he takes the rest of Jamal Williams' low or high value touches and you know adds a lot of low value touches, which is possible, could be fantastic. I'll also note your guy, Jamar Jefferson. No one's adding him anywhere, but 
to the same point about Wayne Gallman, isn't, I mean, I've been thinking about him alongside Wayne Gallman, the same team high value touch point, the number three guy, if somebody misses time in front of him, I think if Jamal misses, we, we see Swift consolidate, but like if Swift were to miss sometime, I think Jamar Jefferson becomes really interesting in this backfield with, with the team situation being what it is. I can't argue against that because I think Jamar Jefferson was too good of a prospect and he was one of these guys who flashed in training camp. A lot of the guys who flash in training camp have been benched for uh, play when the lights came out, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, Jamal Williams seems awfully good to, to lose touches to the rookie, but I am in for that. Then I think we should wrap up here. We probably are five minutes away from telling everybody that they need to start looking to see how they can acquire Eno Benjamin. We'll we'll stop before we get to that point. But it's been a lot of fun again today. Uh, looking forward to the game tonight, which for listeners will have been last night for you. Looking forward to week six, the first bye week. And Ben getting those teams really pointed now toward the fantasy playoffs. So uh, leave the listeners with one last message of some sort. Yeah, that's a good prompt because I am still looking at the stealing signals tool and I see right next to Swift and Jamal Williams, high value touches per snap is Miles Gaskett. He was my, my, I think I put him as the biggest signal this week, just that his role bounced back because I thought that he was a great guy to maybe go out and try to acquire this week. His, his managers have to be frustrated by the fact that I imagine they had him in his in their lineups uh, in week four when he basically didn't play. And then in week five, probably had him on the bench when he goes off. And so sometimes you can get that kind of a guy a little bit cheaper than you should. The way I'm looking at week four is like a, just a normal down week. Like, I mean, I understand at running back, it's scarier because if they don't have the role, they, they lose. But we see wide receivers have not necessarily poor roles, but we, we definitely see them have very bad games, right? And other than that, Miles Gaskin has been solid throughout. He's been pretty efficient. He hadn't hadn't been scoring in the first three weeks uh, touchdowns. It hadn't been used down there it, near the red zone. But we saw that a little bit early last season, and it developed for him. And so far this year, kind of looks like we're, we're on that same trend where he didn't get that stuff, the, the, the green zone stuff in the first couple of weeks. He did actually play snaps down there, similar to Elijah Mitchell. Didn't get a lot of touches, but was playing snaps down there in week five. They and they, oh no, they did give him two carries against Tampa, who <laughs> doesn't allow anything. It was the most bizarre thing. They're like, they're actually thinking they're gonna run in against the Tampa Bay Bucks, who uh, nobody runs against. They they have the fewest rush attempts against in the NFL, the most pass attempts against in the NFL. Some of that's game script related, but teams know that they can't run against the Bucks. I think they're second in the NFL in success rate against the run. They're beatable in the pass, but they were giving the Miami was giving Gaskin even those touches. So. Very excited about, you know, Gaskin's line looked weird as well. He only gets five carries, but that was because they didn't run against the Bucs. He gets 10 receptions, two touchdowns. He's been good. First three games when he was actually playing, at least five targets in every game. Uh, looks like a guy to this point that I let off with uh, high value touches per snap that if he continues to play 60% of the snaps, there's no guarantees. But if he does, he's going to get you some high value touches. He's going to have a solid role. And again, his the, the people that have him, might be kind of frustrated, so he might be a buy right now after that big week five. That is perfect, perfect. That's that's better than Eno Benjamin, and better than I, you know. I was going to say that you know if we're thinking about backfields that could change quickly with an injury and have a lot of value, I'm going to say maybe now is the time to buy Ronald Jones. But we'll stop before I do that because no <laughs> one wants to hear that. That'll do it for today's episode of Ceiling Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel, and with me as always is Ben Gretsch. You can follow him at yards per Gretsch and definitely sign up to the newsletter ceiling signals you'll get all of this cool content coming to you on mondays and tuesdays that will allow you to beat every format that you play in fantasy we've got a lot of cool stuff at rotaviz including the stealing signals tool that ben was mentioning there you can get a 10 percent discount uh, if you use the coupon code rv radio 2021 at checkout Leave us a rating and review. We've had so much fun with you guys. Uh, that's one way you can help us reach some more people and subscribe to the feed. You'll get these episodes a little bit sooner and we'll be happy to have fun with you. Good luck this week. Dominate week six. We'll be back next week.
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com